0: With John chapter 14, beginning in verse 12, most assuredly I say to you, of course Jesus is saying, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. And Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If the Atlanta Braves make the World Series this year, one of the big reasons will be their bullpen. They have a great bullpen. On most nights, Eric O'Flaherty and Johnny Venters and Craig Kimball become a shutdown combination. Here's the winning formula. The starting pitcher, he works his six innings, then the bullpen handles the seventh, the eighth, and the ninth. If the Braves are ahead after six, the odds are they're going to win that game. It's all because of their bullpen. And likewise, Christianity has a great bullpen. Jesus was our starter. He took on flesh and blood and showed us what God is like. He shouldered our sin and died in our place and rose to live in our hearts. But that's when Jesus pulled himself. He ascended to heaven. And the team turned to its bullpen. The Holy Spirit took the mound. Hey, Christianity has a closer. Through the Holy Ghost, God continues to act. You know, the book of Acts is a sequel. You know about sequels. You like sequels. Rocky II is a great sequel. Empire Strikes Back, great sequel. A sequel is a follow-up. The book of Acts, its accompanying volume was the Gospel of Luke. This is why the author opens Acts with these words. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. Notice the operative word. The Gospel of Luke concerned all that Jesus began to do and teach. Implied is that his work hasn't stopped. What Luke's Gospel records was just the beginning. After his ascension into heaven, Jesus continued his activity on the earth. Jesus kept on doing and teaching through his church. Thus the sequel, the Acts of the Apostles. And even today, Jesus acts. Our Lord continues to do and teach. He works through his people by the agency and power of the Holy Spirit. The Savior's ascent to the Father allowed for the Spirit's descent upon the church. As we talked about last week, God comes. God is always coming to His people. In fact, come is God's posture. God came to earth in the first century in the person of Jesus. Now He comes into the world today through the person of the Holy Spirit. But God doesn't just come, for God also acts. And His acts are ongoing. On earth, Jesus healed and forgave and loved and saved. And nothing has caused His deeds to cease. Likewise today, the Holy Spirit is similarly active. Here in John chapter 14, Jesus told His men, Most assuredly, I say to you, He who believes in Me, the works that I do, He will do also. And greater works... Then these he will do, because I go to my Father. Now, if you survey the book of Acts, you'll find that no one disciple did more or mightier acts than Jesus. I mean, take the Apostle Paul, for example. Oh, he was, he was quite a miracle worker. He healed folks. He, he worked all kinds of miracles. But when Paul got caught in the storm, you remember he ended up shipwrecked. Jesus walked on the water. Paul just floated ashore on a wooden beam. Paul had nothing on Jesus. Hey, when it came to miracle power, no person was as prolific as Jesus. But through the agency of the Holy Spirit, God is now able to work in multiple ways, through multiple believers, even in multiple locations. I like how author Walter Wink put it, killing Jesus was like trying to destroy a dandelion by blowing on its head. Jesus ascended to the Father, but He returned, no longer confined to a single human body, but at work in countless hearts and in every corner of the planet through the Holy Spirit. In this sense, the overall impact of a Spirit-filled church is more and mightier than the acts of Jesus. The coming of the Spirit was a boon to Christianity. See, it's nice to have a closer you can count on to finish the game. There's a story in Acts chapter 3 that occurs a few days after the Holy Spirit is poured out on the church at Jerusalem. Peter and John are on their way to the temple. They're going to worship. And they pass by a crippled man. He's been crippled from birth. He's begging. He's there shaking his cup, hoping for a few coins. In fact, his friends have positioned him near the offering boxes. That's smart. Good friends. I mean, he's right there when people are pulling out their wallets and getting out their checkbooks. Great place to be if you're begging for money. Well, Peter sees this man, and he speaks to him. He says, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Then Peter reaches down, and he takes this man by the hand. He lifts him to his feet. And I'm sure his sidekick, John, was absolutely flabbergasted. This is all spontaneous. I'm sure John's there thinking, has Peter gone nuts? Is this guy crazy? I mean, John expects Pete to let go of the man's hand and his legs fold up like wet cardboard. He's going to hit the marble hard. John is thinking, impulsive, Peter's at it again. Imagine the headline in the Mars Jerusalem Post, Christians pick on handicapped person. But as soon as Peter got the man to his feet, a miracle occurred. Acts 3 verse 7 tells us, Immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him. You know, over the years, much has been made of Peter's initial statement to the man. Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have, I give to you. The story is told of the Pope. He was counting the money of the church one day, counting up the church coffers, when Thomas Aquinas entered the room. The Pope pointed to the riches of the church, and then he bragged, we no longer have to say silver and gold, have I none? None. That's when Aquinas responded, Yes, but neither can we say in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. You see, it's a sad indictment against the church when we substitute prosperity for power. When we put more trust in money than in miracles. Hey, no amount of loot can buy what we need most, spiritual power. You see, Peter, he had something. Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have, I give to you. Peter had something. Peter had something very powerful and important and otherworldly other in his possession. It didn't originate with Peter. It was a gift. And it could be taken as easily as it was given. Peter was only its trustee. But you see, Peter had something. He had something from God. Peter had the dynamic of the Holy Spirit. And this power was so real and so immediate and so available that Peter was able to transfer it to someone who needed a work of God in his life. Peter had something special and he was able to give it away. And this is what I want to talk to you about this morning, the power of the Holy Spirit. For God wants to act, and He works today through the power of the Holy Ghost. Yet, in looking back in the rearview mirror of my life, my Christian experience, for so many years, I missed out. I lacked what I needed most. I was trying to live life without the power that I needed to live it. You see, the Christian life is a supernatural life. Your willpower, your best intentions, your strong discipline is never enough. As God said to his construction chiefs, Rubbleble, the temple would be built not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. And this is how every work of God gets done by his spirit. Our energy, our ingenuity are inadequate. Think of what Jesus demands of his followers. He set the bar high. He told his disciples, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Wow. He said, he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. Jesus even said, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. I read those verses and wonder how in the world could I ever measure up. Jesus also put a different spin on sin. He upped the ante on what the Old Testament demanded. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught us, You have heard it said of old, You shall not murder. But I say to you, Whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Oh, really? (laughs) Just angry without a cause? In the same sermon, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her. In other words, according to Jesus, checkered acts come from unchecked attitudes. Murder grows from an unjustified anger. Adultery begins in the head long before it ends in the bed. That's what Jesus says. Jesus expects his followers to deal with the root of their sin. And yet, how do you live at such a high level? A tinge of anger? A lustful peep? I can't drive three miles down Highway 78 without being tempted by both. Between the billboards and the other nuts on the road. <laughs> the frustration level for the disciples, it reached a pinnacle when Jesus dismissed that rich young ruler. This man had kept all of the commandments To the disciples, he was a good man, but apparently not good enough for Jesus. For that's when Jesus told them, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Matthew says of the disciples, They were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? They just throw up their hands. They're exasperated. That's it. If this fellow can't pass muster, there's no hope for the rest of us. And the disciples were right. There is no hope for any of us unless we receive something from God. Unless we receive the same something that Peter had. So many Christians today are trying to obey the great commission while guilty of the great omission. We've ignored the influence of the Holy Spirit. In the Baptist church that I grew up in, the people feared God. The pastor preached Jesus. We all believed in the Bible. But the Holy Spirit was off limits. He was the taboo topic. Our pastor did so much tippy-toeing around the subject of the Holy Spirit, you would have thought the guy was a ballerina. Hey, nothing is more frustrating than trying to do a job without the right tool. And that describes the task of living for Jesus without the Holy Spirit. Jesus told his disciples, let your light so shine before men. For the longest time, I wanted to be a witness for Jesus. I wanted to be a light to a lost world. But I was an electric lamp that wasn't plugged in. You know, you can change a bulb a thousand times. And you can... Revolve the base so that it points in a different direction. And you can bend that gooseneck and you can adjust the shade. But it ain't going to shine until it gets some power. And the same is true with Christians. As a kid growing up in the church, here's what I didn't realize. The Christian life is a supernatural life. You see, a natural life is what I can achieve on my own. Hey, I can conform to a few external standards. I can grind out a few good works. I can maintain an outward facade of respectability. But this isn't the Christian life. It's a religious life, but it's not a Christian life. A truly Christian life is never achieved on our own. A Christian life requires wisdom from above and mercy that springs from the heart of God. And peace that passes all understanding and gifts of the Holy Spirit and boldness that comes from God and perfect love that casts out fear. This is what's required for the Christian life. It's a supernatural life. Certainly the Christian life is lived out in natural ways. Christians run the same course. We jump through the same hoops. We pay the same bills as do our unbelieving neighbors. God wants us to be involved in our world. But the life we live is supranatural. It exceeds what's naturally available. It taps into resources that are beyond the reach of other people. The Christian life is an overcoming life, and that demands a power greater than my own. A truly Christian life doesn't really begin until, like Peter, I receive something strong and supernatural from the Holy Spirit. It doesn't begin until I receive that from God. Some of the most revolutionary words ever spoken came from a wild man who broke with the protocols of his day. John the baptizer, he shattered the mold. He came out of the desert preaching repentance and baptizing Jews of all people. You don't baptize Jews. Gentiles get baptized. But John lived outside of Jerusalem. He lived outside of the religious bubble. He saw that the self-righteousness of God's people was every bit as sinful and evil as the unrighteousness of the pagans. John called the nation to action. And to the waters of the Jordan, Jews began to flood. They were hungry for God. And they were disgusted with their own hypocrisy. Ironically, the people of God had turned their backs on the God they supposedly served. You see, John's baptism was a cleansing of sorts. It was a show of repentance. The Jews were turning their backs on their sin and their self-righteousness. But John knew that his work was incomplete. For repentance is never enough. In addition to turning from your sin, you have to get something from God. John told his disciples, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. You see, John's baptism brought the recognition that something was wrong, and that's a needed first step, but it brought nothing else. It left us empty. Yet when Jesus baptizes us with the Spirit, He immerses us in the good things of God. We receive from God something precious and powerful. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12. He he spoke of a demon who had exited a man's life. He had roamed the earth looking for a suitable abode elsewhere. But when he strikes out, he returns to his former home. And guess how he finds it? It's swept clean. It's spick and span. Yet it's empty. So what does the demon do? Well, he returns. And he brings seven of his buddies with him. And Jesus says the last state of the man is worse than the first. Jesus is describing the plight of a person who only experiences repentance. Who has cleaned up but has not received power from above. I remember going to church and being so convicted by my sin. Oh, our pastor, he knew all the buttons to push He can make you feel guilty. And I would rush the altar with a tearful confession. Every Sunday was like spring cleaning, man. I was going to the altar confessing something new. And I would leave church with a resolved conscience, but a vacant heart. You see, you can rid yourself of sin and guilt, yet still not receive the power you need from God. Sin gets swept away, but your heart remains empty. And when the next wave of temptation rolls in, you're no more ready to resist this time than you were at first. If repentance is all you know, you're doomed to repeat your sin. Your last state ends up worse than the first. You see, the pull of temptation can be strong. That's why the best way to resist it is to get caught up in something stronger a power greater than your sin. And is there anything on earth more formidable than the power of God? Peter told the beggar, but what I have, I give to you. And the power that Peter had received from God healed this crippled man's legs. Don't think for a second, it won't lift your depression or overcome your fears or heal your illness, or in your loneliness, or provide you with boldness, or even comfort you in your loss. This is why repentance is never enough. God doesn't just want our hearts swept clean. You see, repentance is like a feather duster. Oh, it gets rid of the dust, but it doesn't leave that nice polish. It doesn't create an attractive shine. That's why we need to be saturated with the oil Of the Holy Spirit. When you come to God. An exchange takes place. You leave your sin. On the shoulders of Jesus. Then you get something holy. To take its place. Have you made that exchange? Have you gotten something powerful. And precious from God? In the book of Acts. When believers were baptized with the Holy Ghost. Various acts followed healings and faith and miracles and wisdom. You see, when you get something from God, it can be whatever you need at the time. Acts chapter 3 is a great example for Peter to lift up this crippled man. He needed faith. I'm sure John shuddered, whatever you do, don't drop him. Hope you've got faith. But you see, later Peter tells us the back story. He says that his faith that day had come from the Holy Spirit, that it was the gift of faith that it wasn't just the ordinary, daily kind of faith that we're all expected to have. It was a supernatural allotment of faith. There are occasions in the book of Acts when people are given insight into situations that only God would have known. They're given boldness to speak for God, even in the face of violent opposition. Sometimes the something we get is the power to heal or be healed. In Acts 13, Paul is baptized with the Spirit. He looks a blasphemer in the eyes and then he orders up his blindness. He brings judgment on the guy. I mean, wild and woolly stuff go on when God's people are filled with the Holy Spirit and His Spirit acts through them. You remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira. When they lied to the Holy Spirit, the deceivers drop dead. The book of Acts are great acts and then some acts are tough acts. The last verse in 1 Corinthians 14 concludes Paul's instructions on the use of the gifts of the Holy Spirit in the church. And there he says, let all things be done decently and in order. And that's nice. And in the church, we should do things decently and in order. The church should use discretion and proper etiquette in the exercise of the spiritual gifts. But understand, that doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit's going to do everything decently and in order. (laughs) As a matter of fact, the Holy Spirit's going to do whatever He pleases There's one certainty. When God unleashes His Spirit, He intends to act. Jesus is still in the world doing and teaching through the Holy Spirit. In fact, the activity of the Holy Spirit is the seal that marks a person as God's purchased possession. The Spirit is God's brand or His coat of arms. See, in the ancient world, every business and government had their own seal. So when a buyer was combing through the marketplace, and when he found the commodity he wanted to purchase, he would affix his seal on that shipment. The seal was his mark of ownership. When it made its final destination, it was offloaded, and then it was taken and identified by the seal. This becomes the background for Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. There Paul writes, In Him, or in Christ, you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, for in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. You and I were purchased by Jesus on the cross, but now it's the Holy Spirit's activity in our lives that identifies us as belonging to Him. You see, what Jesus saves, He gets hold of, He changes, He cleanses us, he changes us. But when He baptizes us with the Holy Spirit, we get hold of Him. We get a taste of God. We experience a little bit of heaven here on earth. And this is the Christian's takeaway. When I get something from God, a power or wisdom or a gift, it assures me and everyone else around me that I belong to Jesus. When the Holy Spirit acts in my life in a way that I can see or feel or know, it seals my relationship with God. Suddenly, I know that I know that I belong to Him. You see, whatever God purchases, He begins to work and act in whatever He purchases. And so when He works in your life, it's your assurance that you belong to Jesus. Let me share with you my testimony. After I gave my life to Jesus, I I had this passionate love for people. Overnight, I became aware that Jesus died for every person that I met. I'd drive past the movie theater and I'd see the people hanging out in the parking lot, and I'd start thinking, how can I reach those people for Jesus? I'll never forget driving home one night when I saw a group of my peers hanging out in front of the Golden Pantry. Remember the Golden Pantry? We only hung out in the best places. But they were right there in front of the golden pantry. And I felt this heavenly urge to stop and tell them about Jesus. But like the brave, obedient fellow that I am, I just kept right on driving. I tucked tail and headed home. And I felt so defeated. I remember walking in and flopping face down on the living room floor and admitting to God that I was a chicken, that I was afraid that I cared more about what other people thought about me than what God thought about me. I was completely powerless. And yet before I'd finished praying that night, something came over me, something supernatural. I got something from God. It was a boldness. And I'll never forget, rising to my feet, I got back in my car, and I drove right back down to the golden pantry. And guess what? Nobody was there. The parking lot had been vacated. The cops must have come. I don't know. But they were there the next night, and I stopped, and I was able to witness to the whole bunch of them, even prayed with two fellows to receive Jesus into their life. I learned that night what it meant to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And since that time, I've been filled with the Holy Spirit numerous times, I like what famous Pastor R.A. Torrey once wrote. He said, we need to be filled again and again with the Holy Spirit. I'm sometimes asked, have you received the second blessing? Yes, and the third, and the fourth, and the fifth, and hundreds besides. And I'm looking for a new blessing today. Perhaps you've been filled with the Holy Spirit in the past, but God may want to do a new work in your life today. You need to be filled with the Holy Spirit today. Perhaps you've run dry. Maybe you've been running on empty for a long time now. Maybe you're depleted. You see, you can't give what you don't have. And this is why Peter said to the crippled man, what I do have, I give to you. Do you need to get something from God today? Do you need to get something supernatural from the Holy Spirit? In Acts chapter 19, Paul came to Ephesus. We're told in verse 2, in finding some disciples, Paul said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And so they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And here's the great tragedy. They hadn't even heard of the Holy Spirit for years, though, in my life. This was the very issue that had robbed me of victory and usefulness. Did I have the Holy Spirit? Well, sure I did. Romans chapter 8 tells us that you can't be a Christian without the Holy Spirit. The moment you're saved, He purchases us as His own. He takes possession of us. The Holy Ghost comes to dwell in us. But you see, the Ephesians had not been baptized with the Spirit. God acts. He does stuff in what belongs to Him. And if you belong to Him, He wants to seal you as His by acting in your heart and doing stuff in your life and filling you with the Holy Spirit. Have you gotten something from God? It's interesting what Paul asked the Ephesians. He says, and he said to them, into what then were you baptized? And so they said, into John's baptism. We knew that. Here was the problem. We see it again. They only knew John's baptism. The Ephesians had repented. They had turned to sin. But that's not enough. You've got to get something from God in return. Jesus purchased them a pardon, but they still lacked his power. Remember, it's possible to be free from sin. Yet because the pull of temptation is still strong, to live free and stay free, you need a power stronger than your temptation. You need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The story ends for the Ephesians. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on Him who would come after Him, that is, on Christ Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them. Last week, I complimented us all for the responsible life that most of us live. We mow our lawn and pay our bills and take the garbage out on the day, the garbage day and raise our kids and love our spouse. And and this is all good. But often the good can rob us of the best. The tangible can crowd out the spiritual. And I encouraged us all last week to try to push back Our lives, push back the material and the tangible, and make some room around our hearts. Create some spiritual space in our lives for the Holy Spirit to come to us. But this week, I want to take it one step further. For you not only need to make room for the Holy Spirit, when He comes, you need to receive something precious and powerful from Him. God comes. But God also acts. He wants you to live a supernatural life. We're going to take communion this morning. And when we come to rejoice in the price that's been paid, let's remember that Jesus purchased us with His blood. But that's not the end of it. He also wants to seal us with the Holy Spirit. He wants to work in what belongs to Him. He not only cleans us up, Jesus wants to fill us up. After you come and take the bread and the wine, if you want something supernatural from God this morning, our pastors and elders will be here in the altar and we'll we'll be available to pray with you, to lay hands on you and pray with you to receive the Holy Spirit today, to be filled and baptized with the Holy Spirit. I'm praying not a person who desires it will walk out these doors without getting something from God today. It's already been paid for. It's been paid for by the bread by the wine, by the body and blood of Jesus. But now we need to receive that power into our lives. And I encourage you to do that this morning. I finished up a little early this morning. You know what? I actually was thinking as I was preparing this Bible study that, you know, it's not really about the Bible study this morning anyway. I I just tried to set the stage because I believe God wants to do something in your life and in your heart. I believe that God wants to work in a lot of people's lives this morning. Do you want to know that you know? Do you, do you want to be more than just a Christian on paper? Do you want to have that experience and know the power of God in your life? You can do so this morning as we celebrate what Jesus has done for us. Let's, let's remember what He's done. He's enabled the Holy Spirit to come and, and to empower us He's enabled us to live a supernatural life. Let's receive something from God today, that which He wants to give us. Father, thank You for Your Word today. Thank You for Your love for us. And Lord, I I look forward to what You're about to do in this place this morning, Lord, as we celebrate once again the sacrifice of Jesus, the price that's been paid. Help us to recognize what all's been paid what, all, what the price is covered. It's covered not only our salvation, but our empowerment. The life that we want to live. Victory over sin. The struggle we're having with temptation. It, the overcoming life. You've, you've paid for it all on the cross, and now it's up to us, Lord, to receive it. So, Lord, I pray that as, as we come, that You'll work, that You'll act in and on and through our hearts will work in our lives today, Lord. We love you. We thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. We're going to worship the Lord.